Let's turn together to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And it is good to see you here in the room who've come to church. And I know some of you at home need to be home due to health and glad that you're there worshiping there with us. But coming to church is a critical discipline of the Christian life for those who are able to do it. It's a critical discipline. And wouldn't you agree? It is a discipline because I bet when that alarm goes off in the morning, there are Sundays, if not every Sunday where you go, oh, I don't know about this. This bed feels very good. I don't know that I want to leave it. And yet we know now this is why we exist to give worship to God and corporate worship is a big part of it. In fact, here at the church, we talk about four E's that should be part of our church experience. So we talk about encounter, encourage, equip, and engage. And that E for encounter means we're going to gather and encounter God, not just occupy the space, but we're going to encounter the living God in worship. And while we're here, we're going to encourage one another. I want to come with the purpose of encouraging others and to receive encouragement. I want to be equipped for greater discipleship. And I want to engage in service to the Lord here in the body. And of course, all week outside of the body. And so again, I thank you for being here for worship and being consistent in worship. But can I ask you to add something to that? That you would add preparation of your heart for worship if you're not already one who does that. Because it's possible we could just go through a good discipline, a good routine of coming, but add to that intentionality. Lord, I want to be prepared. As you can imagine, as a pastor in the role that God has given me here, I have to extensively prepare for every Sunday. In fact, Preparation for next week is going to start really after this service. Actually, it already has started, but, but you can imagine the week ahead. I know Sunday is coming. So there's a whole week of walking with him so that what we're doing together for me is going to be an overflow of that walk all week. Of course, as you can imagine, all week is studying for this moment that we can feed together on the word of God. And then there's Sunday morning itself. And for me, that alarm goes off at 5 a.m. that I can be awake and my heart prepared, spend time with him, and then be ready for these moments together as a church. And then there's the drive in and there's preparation there. And today I got stopped by a long train. And so I had a little longer time to sit there at the train. But here are three things that I do to prepare my heart every Sunday, really every day of the week, but every Sunday on the drive here and between each of these services, done so again today. Three exhortations to myself. The first one's be filled then be prepared, then be strong and courageous. So be filled is from Ephesians and we're told to be full of the Holy Spirit. And so that's me just saying, Lord, I want to be emptied of me, no conscious sin in my life. And Lord, I don't want you to fill me. I have no power. I need your power. So be filled, then be prepared. Of course, by Sunday morning, it's a little too late then. I have to be prepared all week long, but just exhorting myself all week, be prepared. And so be full of the Holy Spirit, be filled, be prepared. And if I'm filled, if I'm prepared, then I have every reason to be strong and courageous. And because I'm not by nature strong and courageous, I need to remind myself I need his strength and I need to go out in his strength. That's how I prepare myself every week. But how about you? How do you prepare yourself for gathering together in worship? Can I suggest a couple of ways? We're on our way to our text, but just for a moment, one thing I would suggest to you is Saturday night cap it. Like how late am I going to stay up? Because you want to give God your best in worship. You don't want to drag in, although it's wonderful, however condition you come, but because we're worshiping almighty God, we don't want to drag in. So in your mind, discipline yourself. I can't stay up so late because I want to be fresh for worship. I want to be ready to bless other people. So cap your Saturday night that you might be refreshed in the morning and then rise up and spend some moments preparing your heart. All right, Lord, I'm going to hear your word today. Again, been 
hearing your word all week in my quiet time, but now I'm here in church. I want to hear and respond to your word. And there are going to be needy Christians all around me, everybody hurting, and I want to go ready to serve and be a blessing, to encourage other people there, spend some time in that preparation. So it's important how we come to worship. But Jesus is going to remind us also, it's important how you leave worship. And those two are very often related. How you show up for worship is going to impact how you worship and how you leave here in a moment. But Jesus is really going to focus today on how we're leaving and so today, I, my prayer is that you're going to leave changed, closer to God than you've ever been in your life, that none of us would leave here unchanged. So here's a, a familiar parable to many. Maybe it's new to some of you. Luke 18, let's pick up in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice here, we're told who Jesus is going to target with this teaching right at the beginning. Luke tells us, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the focus here. Jesus is attacking self-righteous pride by this parable. We want to hear the words of our Lord. And in this parable, did you notice, Jesus tells us of two men who go to the same location, this place of worship, the temple. They brought in two very different hearts and they left with very different hearts. And so today for us, here we are, a bunch of worshipers in this room. This is the third of three services. We've had a lot of people here, but the point has not been merely being here. It's how we're going to leave here in a moment is what this is all about. I remember growing up and my parents had us in church. My parents uh, growing up, we wouldn't be what you would call disciples. They weren't devout, but one thing they did do, they got the five of us kids to church most Sundays, more Sundays than not, we would be there. As I think about it, it was quite a feat for my mom and stepdad to get the five of us to church. And I was the youngest, so I got to watch. And I learned, this is what you do as a teenager when your parents tell you to go to church. You go, oh, oh, I don't want to go. And so I watched my older siblings do that. And so nobody was going happily other than my mom and stepdad. And so can you imagine that? That was the car ride there. We'd get there. Everybody thought we were a nice looking family. They had no idea the battle. My mom and stepdad went through to get us there. But here's what I remember, being in the place reluctantly in church until I was saved about 17. But in those years before that, I'd sit there. And I remember some Sundays, I'd have this sensation. I still remember it. I would look down at my hand, sometimes up in the balcony, and I would think, I feel clean. I feel clean. What is it about being here? I feel clean. But I wasn't clean. I was anything but clean. My life was filthy 
through a lot of those years. It wasn't the building that was going to make me clean. It was only coming to Jesus later when he would make me clean. It's not, it's not the place. It's not merely coming. It's, it's meeting God here. It's meeting Jesus and then leaving here. So again, how will you leave in just a few moments from here? Will, will you leave knowing Jesus or will you leave the same as you came in. So Jesus tells us about two men. Let's do this. Let's look at these two men and let's decide which one describes us better. So here we have the first man. It is a religious Pharisee and we see him in all of his ugly pride. There he is in the temple and we find him standing and the new American standard Bible translates it. He prayed to himself. He sure wasn't praying to God as we'll see. Certainly nothing about what he was saying was pleasing to God. It wasn't much of a prayer at all. It was more of a self-eulogy. So we go to funerals and oftentimes there's that very touching time when loved ones will share about their relative. And, and we share about funny things that happen and some of their wonderful qualities, things we're going to miss. It can be a very tender part of it. But here's a guy not waiting for his funeral for other people to say nice things about him. It's a self-eulogy. Hey, right now I'm going to talk about me and how great I am. Notice it again, verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Here's a man not praying. He's giving a resume of his goodness about his religious practices. He's even saying, I'm glad I'm not like other people and even singles out somebody else in worship. And this wasn't, wasn't like what we just sang. You and I just sang of God's grace toward us. He wasn't saying, God, I'm so grateful that you have forgiven me and you've given me a new life and I have a whole new direction now. No, it's just look what I've accomplished myself. Look how good I am. Give me credit for the things that I've done. God, you actually owe me because of how good I've been to you. It was a self-righteous ego trip. And people can come to worship like that. So here a person might come and they're thinking, well, I, I'm better than other people. I don't do the bad things that other people do, or I'm glad I'm not like some infamous person. So historically, a lot of people would measure themselves up against Adolf Hitler. If Hitler's bad, I'm no Adolf Hitler. Therefore, I'm a good person. Osama bin Laden, we should do that. And now recently, sadly, the tragic shooting in Texas, and we hear a lot about evil on the news. It's, it's, good to hear that word used in the popular culture. There is evil. And we could look at a person who did such an evil thing as that young man and go, well, I'm not that. Therefore I am righteous and praise God. Most of us don't do things like that, but we can't by comparison say, well, then I am righteous. Some people might even have a twisted version like this. Maybe they partied really hard last night. So you could be here after a hard night of partying and you could say, but I didn't party like some people did. I mean, I'm good by comparison. There's a line I didn't cross while the others were going super crazy. I just went crazy and therefore I'm more righteous than them. Or maybe somebody here say, well, yeah, I cuss. I know I shouldn't, but, but I have a level of righteousness. There's certain words that I won't say. Some people will say all those words, but I cap my cussing right here. I'm more righteous. Listen, that's wrong thinking. That's us cherry picking our obedience to say to God, well, look, God, I could be doing worse than I'm doing because I'm not doing the maximum evil. Then you have to look at me as somehow good. Listen, are you that person this morning? Are you avoiding some things? You're, you're selectively thinking about your life. You're presenting that to God, but God's not just seeing what you're presenting. He sees your entire life and he knows the true picture about you. Again, notice here, this man felt nothing of his need for God. 
Strangely absent from this man's worship was any focus on God. He was focusing only on himself. He had no love for God like we just sang about. No passion for God. No urgency here. So it's a reminder, prideful, passionless worship is dangerous. It's the type of worship where they think, I don't really need anything from God. I'm just checking in because it's what good people do. I just come to church and God really is kind of lucky to have me because I didn't have to come this morning and I'm here and really he owes me blessings because I'm here. This is what the Pharisee is doing. And again, the question, is any of that in your heart? Is any of that a part about how you approach God? Notice Jesus said that guy with all that pride, sensing no need of God, he left unchanged. He left unjustified. He, he left unsaved from that time of worship. But now let's look at the second man and let's ask, does this better reflect my heart? Look again at verse 13 as we read about this tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We've talked about the tax collectors before. Jesus would talk about them. Jesus even saved one of them, Matthew a former tax collector. So we hear about them. Who, who are they again? The tax collectors were what people would have looked at as like super sinners. Everybody's a sinner, but those tax collectors, they're the worst of the worst. They were viewed as appropriately traitors against the Jewish people. They would collect taxes from their fellow Jewish people and give them to the oppressive Roman government. Nobody liked them. And it wasn't just honest tax taking. It was, they would add to the price of the taxes money for themselves. And everybody knew it. I'm getting cheated while I pay taxes to these oppressors. And they were known for their immorality. And so here was a person who was a tax collector, Jesus says, who comes into the temple. But this guy, though he's lived a life of sin, something's different now. Now he's what we would call being under conviction. Do you know that phrase? Under conviction. When you come under conviction, that awareness that though I thought I was fine all these years leading up to this, I suddenly now am aware I'm not okay. And any of us who've become a believer, we've had that experience where God mercifully shows us the real picture of ourselves. Oh, I, I'm not okay. God doesn't just merely overlook these things. He's not just looking at the few good things I do. I, I am in trouble here. And so here's this man, he's under conviction, and here he's feeling troubled about all of this sin about himself. He's standing far off, he's not drawing close, he feels unworthy to be in the presence of God. It says he wouldn't even look up his, lift up his eyes to heaven, he couldn't look up there to a holy God. And this is intense, did you notice how Jesus describes him? He's beating his chest. Have you ever been so distraught about your sin, so, so full of shame and undone? that something like that would happen. Sometimes in scripture, we read of them tearing their garments. They're so full of remorse, but he's beating his chest. And then hear his cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Everything that the Pharisee had said about him was probably true of that tax collector. He's unjust, that guy's unjust. He's, he's an adulterer, he's a swindler. All that would be true. But in the presence of God, now that's not okay for him. He at last sees his guilt, He's filled with remorse, he's humble, he's repentant, and then that beautiful, painful plea for mercy. Lord, be merciful to me. Listen, and he got mercy. That's the most amazing part of this. He received mercy. Somebody might hear this story and go, wait a minute, that doesn't seem fair. It seems like the person who lived the squeaky clean life, that one's the one that should be right with God. But Jesus is telling us, wait a minute, it's the, it's the horrible, despicable sinner 
that's leaving that place with a relationship with God. Somebody might protest saying, but isn't the whole point of the Christian life being good? But we say, no, that's not the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is we have not been good and we need to be saved. That's why we sang only songs about Jesus. None of the songs were about you today. None of the songs were about me today. It was all about Jesus because we needed somebody other than ourselves to save us. And that's what we find here in this parable, making very clear to us. So the Bible tells us certain things to do. We look at the, even the old covenant. We have God's law and we look at that law and go, that's good, but I haven't kept it perfectly. Even in the old covenant, we were told to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We say, but I haven't done that. I haven't done that well. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Even in the old covenant, yes, echoed in the new covenant, but have I even loved my neighbor as myself? No, this law shows me I have not been good. There's no way I could possibly save myself. And the, the scriptures explicitly teach us that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, the scripture says. The Bible says that even all of our attempts at righteousness are like filthy rags in the sight of our holy God. So we were to be good, but we were not. And so we need forgiveness. All of us are needing a rescue. The path to being right with God is not trying to be good. It's being saved. Notice Jesus' words here in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. So what's that word justified there in our text? What's Jesus talking about? The word justified is just another way of talking about being saved. To be justified means you have been declared righteous in the sight of God. A sinner, that's what you have performed. That's the true you. But because of your faith in Jesus, you have been declared righteous in the sight of God. It's wonderful. In the sight of God, once you trust in Jesus, declared righteous, it's just as if you had never sinned. Isn't that amazing? With all of our sin, the millions of sin, the magnitudes of our sins, to come to Jesus and have him declare that you are so clean in the sight of God, it's as if you never did any of those sins. This is what it means to be justified. It is a beautiful word. And we're told one of these men left the presence of God justified. And one of the men left thinking he was already right. He wasn't. Listen, we need forgiveness. We need God to justify us. We'll never convince God that we don't need mercy. We'll never convince God that we're just fine without him because God has told us, oh, you know, you, you need me and you need the savior that I've given for you. First John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you may fool yourself in thinking that you don't need a savior, but you won't fool God because he says, listen, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. But then first John 1, 9, but if we confess our sin, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So see this clearly with me. When we, think, when we think we're so good that we don't need mercy, we will not receive mercy. When we think we're so good that we have no sin, that's the worst sin of all because now we're full of pride and unbelief. We're not believing the gospel. The gospel says we're sinners who need a savior. And if you say, but I don't need one, you're calling the entirety of the gospel false. That's unbelief. You're calling the entirety of the Bible false because you're disagreeing with its entire message. What could be a worse sin than that? You say, but I'm not an adulterer and I'm not a swindler. I'm not all these other things. But if you're in unbelief, not believing the gospel that you need a savior, 
This is terrible, terrible arrogance. But a person might protest, but wait a minute, you don't know me. I'm generous. I don't need a savior. I'm a generous person. I would give people the shirt off my back. I pay my taxes. I'm an honest citizen. I volunteer at my child's school. People like me don't go to hell. I, I'm saved already by how nice I am. I even recycle. <laughs> Neighbors don't even recycle. I drive past them. I look down on them. They don't recycle like I recycle. And Surely people like me are already right with God. Who does that sound like? It sounds like the Pharisee. Naming all the things he does for neglecting a lot of things that could be on the list. I'm worthy by myself. It's just not true. Consider with me the first man and the second man really were more alike than different if they understood themselves. Both were in the same place of worship. Both prayed to the same God, presumably. Both were sinful men in need of mercy, but only one recognized it. The other didn't. But only one received mercy. Only one went home saved. And here's just a reminder for us. We all have the same need. No matter your background, no matter your story, we all have the same need. We need the same Jesus. There are people who are down and out and there are people who are up and out and they all need the same Jesus. The person who grew up an atheist and the kid who grew up in church, they need to repent and believe in the same Jesus. The person who drives a Mercedes and the person who push, pushes a shopping cart downtown, they need faith in the same Jesus to be saved. The person who works in a corner office and the person who rides on the back of a trash truck, they need the same Jesus. Sinners in need of mercy from God. But here in our parable, Jesus said one of them, instead of receiving Jesus, exalted himself. And the other one though, humbled himself. And so for a moment, let's consider together how humility really is essential in being saved. In fact, the whole gospel centers in on this humility. We see it first in Jesus. Jesus, who was God, very God, left heaven, took on humanity, that he might come and rescue us. How humbling is this? He was so humble that God would leave his heaven, take on humanity, and to come save us. But think about how humbly he did it. Remember what we talk about at Christmas time. He came and was born to a woman, a virgin, and then the first birthplace, his first bed, a manger in a stable. How humble was Jesus in his coming for us. And then he lived that perfect life in obedience to the father, taught and loved and healed, but all to go to a cross and Jesus willing to give himself on a cross. What could be more humbling than dying on a cross for the sins of other people? And of course, on the third day, he was raised from the dead, victorious over our sin and death, vindicated by the father. And so Jesus in humility gave himself for us. And we come to him then with our humility recognizing I needed you to do that for me, that you would give your body and blood for me. You tell me I need that. Then I come humbly. I agree with that gospel. I will believe in you as the only savior. So our faith is to be in Jesus, not in ourselves. Paul told the Galatians this in Galatians 2, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He went on to say this, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if you could go to heaven like the Pharisee said, because I tithe and because I do nice things and because I don't do some things, then why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die on a cross? If you could save yourself by a few good behaviors. No, we don't trust ourselves. We trust in the savior, Jesus. And Jesus taught us to do so. 
John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4.12, the apostles preached this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Did you notice? No other name on all the earth that can save you, but the name of Jesus. Not your name, not any other name. Jesus alone can save you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, no pride in our salvation. And then Romans six twenty three: for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how do we respond to this beautiful parable today? Well, we respond first by humbling ourselves today. Jesus made it very clear for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Elsewhere, we're told that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so our move is, oh, I will embrace what the Bible says about me. I will own up to my sin. And it's going to involve not comparing ourselves to other people. Comparison is a big problem. We see it right here in this parable where the man said, I'm not like other people. You know, we live in this social media age. And if you spend time on it and I'm on there too, um, comparison is a big part of it. I think it's part of our sin nature reacting to all that we're seeing. And so sometimes on social media, you can begin to feel inferior to other people's lives. As you see what they put up, you think they take better vacations than I take. They have a bigger house than I have. Their furniture is nicer than mine. Their cars are better than mine. And you can begin to feel inferior. Their kids are smarter than mine. Their kids get better grades and they're going to better colleges. You can, you can begin to feel really inferior to that. But then we're twisted people and then we can turn around and feel superior to those very same people. But at least I'm not a materialist. At least I don't brag about my kids' grades online like that. <laughs> so we're just a mess of comparison to one another when we spend time out there. If we're not careful, if we don't guard our hearts. But listen, this isn't about comparison to know whether you're right with God. Listen, today, ask the Lord to open your eyes to the true you today. And, and look in there. In fact, most of us here are consistent church-going people. Here's a word for us. Let's make sure no pride has crept into ourselves that we think we're better than other people. Somehow God owes us something. Listen, our pride would be a gross sin. We see it in the Pharisee. Let's make sure we're not comparing ourselves to him and have the same sin in ourselves. Apathy would be a gross sin that could be in us that we're not paying attention to, unbelief of some level, loving the world more than we ought to, loving money, self-centeredness, neglecting God, treating Jesus like he's merely an add-on to our lives rather than the very center of our lives. We may give ourselves a pass on these things, but let's ask God, Lord, show me the real me. And then when we see our sins, let's do like the tax collector in his conviction, cried out for mercy. There's our move. Here, this one who lived really a despicable life up until that moment, he models the way for us sinners. Goes, this is what it looks like to come to the Lord. I come humbly. We tell the Lord, I need mercy. I'm desperate to be cleansed. I need your strength to walk a new walk away from the life I've been living. I, I have to be different. And you're the only one who can make me different. Lord, forgive me and take all of me. In fact, we target our faith at Jesus. Scripture says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said, whoever believes in him, speaking of himself, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
So we humble ourselves. We cry out for mercy. So I'm aware we've been talking about making sure we're not prideful. But some of you who've come today and maybe some of you watching from home, you've had the mindset that I am totally unworthy. I already came so humble. I felt like I shouldn't even come here. I felt like I was an imposter. If they knew the real me and the life I've lived, they wouldn't want me here. Can I tell you, we want you here and you're just like us. None of us are worthy. Can I tell you, I believe that God orchestrated this day that you would either be in this room or you'd be watching right now at home on the live stream. I believe that's all because God loves you and he knows you better than you know yourself. You've forgotten a lot of your sin and God's aware of all that and he loves you. And this parable is right in the Bible for you to know that you can repent today. You can cry out to God for mercy, for forgiveness. That guilt that you feel, that's a gift. That's God convicting you that he might cleanse you. That's why Jesus came, gave his body and blood on a cross to atone for all those things that you're ashamed of. And Jesus was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And so that you could have a brand new life in Jesus. In fact, that's what's available to you. You can be like this tax collector, seeing your sin today, receiving forgiveness, and you will leave here saved. You'll leave here justified in just a moment, a brand new life through trusting in Jesus. Oh, I pray that you would. But then there are those who maybe came in today thinking, I'm fine. I don't really need this. I'm doing God a favor. But now in these moments, seeing the Pharisee's life, as the Holy Spirit's worked on you, you've realized, wait a second. I've been one like the Pharisee. I've been trusting in myself that I'm righteous. I've even had contempt and looked down on others. You need to be saved today as well. Turn from that pride, turn from self-righteousness and go to the one who can truly make you righteous. Trust in Jesus. We'll close with this. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's good to be poor in spirit. When you recognize I can't do this, I am bankrupt spiritually, but I know the one who can forgive me. I know the one who can save me. Go from poor in spirit and call out to the Lord for mercy. Call out to Jesus for salvation. He will save you. Pray with me.